Hello everyone, I think we're live. We're here with Erval to discuss materialism and the refutation of materialism, the nuking of it from orbit, as I put it in the title. Um, we're here with Erval because he's, he's, he's really the Salutrian psychopomp here. He's here to lay some facts about how materialism is completely untenable and will be utterly annihilated. Total idealist victory. Um, we're sponsored by Lore Coffee. You can check them out in the description for your nice boutique coffee interest, which everyone has universally. And uh, yeah, you're not going to do better than the lore, so check that out in the description. Um, you can send a trip, uh, a tip through Streamlabs or through Super Chat um, and, uh, and ask us a question for the Q&A period, which will come at the end of the stream. So stick around for that. How's it going, Trey? You there? I'm here. I'm good. Ready All right. to go. How are you doing, Eric? Oh, pretty good. Yep. It's warming up, so I'm glad about that. The groundhog did not see a shadow, so that's good news. Good news, good news. Staying close to the earth in the uh, in the homesteading project goes incredibly mm -hmm. hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Um, we have a fourth co-host, you know, Nate. It might be here soon, inshallah, you know, all that. Um, inshallah. So basically, I've, I've compiled a few arguments from the literature um, refuting materialism, both on the grounds of, of physics and also on the grounds of kind of philosophy of mind, this kind of stuff, the irreducibility of, of conscious, consciousness to, uh, to particles. Uh, and I'm just going to kind of go through them and you guys can comment on them, add your own arguments, um, and we'll just kind of go down the list. That sound good? Yeah. Sure. All right. So beginning with, with arguments from uh, mind, we have several arguments which demonstrate in the literature kind of the, the, irreducibility, the irreducibility of phenomenal experience to... to uh, um, to, 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 to matter, to uh, particles. And they're from David Chalmers. David Chalmers is, is well regarded within kind of, um, he's like a big figure within philosophy of mind and, and how do we sort all these things out. So he's got a couple arguments. The first one is what's called Mary's apple argument. Uh, and it's basically, if you imagine a woman who um, spends all her life in a black and white room, she never sees color. And, uh, um, but she spends all her time basically studying everything there is to know on the material end of what color vision is like. So she knows everything that there is to know about color vision uh, from chemistry to biology to psychology, perception, neuroscience, physics, etc. She knows everything there is to know about, um, about color vision, but she never sees color. Now, one day she leaves the room and she sees a red apple for the first time. So she sees color for the first time. Does she know something new about red, about color that she did not know beforehand? Now, it would seem to me that materialist has to say no, because... Uh, basically, the analysis of particles is ultimately everything there is to know about the reality of, of color vision. But that seems highly unintuitive. It seems like she does actually gain knowledge in having this phenomenal experience of red, which is not reducible to um, knowledge of color vision, um, pertaining like scientific knowledge of color vision, which um, it would seem you'd have to claim if, if materialism were true. So what do you think of that argument from Chalmers? Do you have any comments on that, either of you two? Yeah, I think it's a good one for the existence of qualia and the fact that uh, there are states of knowledge beneath or beyond uh, propositional knowledge. So scientific knowledge is termed usually uh, propositionally, and that summarizes these material systems um, that themselves, though, here's like a deeper criticism I would have of that, themselves are always ultimately predicated on phenomenal conscious experience you know like a free-floating equation 
describing the color red um, like a Newtonian equation doesn't subsist except in our minds and also all of the like empirical experience it's like there's not a hard break between the qualitative uh phenomenological information and the quantitative phenomenological information so yeah like for mary to undergo the process of learning all that information she always had to be a subjective experience it's not like she could you know, escape that process. And then qualia is something unique. Um, but it does show that no amount of propositions, um, no fully descriptive scientific theory is possible that would eliminate the need for this like basic given datum. But again, it, it's grounding all of the scientific stuff anyway. It just kind of illustrates this qual uh, qualia category is genuine and informative. Right. Yeah. It uh it kind of reminds me of what we were talking about in the previous episode, which was um sort of the problem with like a Nietzschean uh and I know you had that great debate with uh, Uber Boyo on uh, Nietzsche Nietzsche versus Plato. And Nietzsche sort of has this vision of a purely imminent sort of metaphysics, like no transcendence, right? For Nietzsche, even to um Nietzsche will say somewhere in his notes or in, in a book that uh to even question uh ethics, like to even propose ethics as a sort of uh, uh, philosophical field that you can inquire is to abstract yourself from like the immediate affirmation of life. And it's to posit like this false sort of spirit nature dichotomy or subject object dichotomy. But I agree with you, Eric, that there is no escaping just, I mean, one, the fact of our own subjective embodiment, and then also the fact of to even talk about um, logos to talk about the idea presupposes the uh the subject and this is something a great theologian uh sergey bulgakov orthodox uh, russian theologian we really love he talks about this in his uh book on language called the philosophy of the name uh the, the predicate which stands for the idea the logos which uh reveals the subject um it, it depends upon the up, upon the subject and uh, one of the things with nietzsche is that um when you have this purely imminent ontology with no transcendence, no notion of wh whether that be personal or impersonal, um, you're led to this problem that Zizek, I think, really articulates well, which is that you necessarily have an incomplete ontology. And that's because to imagine the whole, like imagine the, uh, the material world as a whole already presupposes a subject standing outside who can grasp the whole as a whole. Um, and I think this may go, might go into something even more fundamental, which is to have identity whatsoever, not just a, a whole of the universe, but to have any identity, any whole, which sort of is irreducible to its parts. Um, in order to have identity at all, you need to, um, you need to have something higher than pure, pure materialism. Uh, so I don't know if that's something you want to talk about, Erval. I know that gets like a bit more fundamental, I think, to like yeah. really the problem of identity itself. That's always been the most compelling argument for idealism for me, exactly that issue, that when we imagine the material cosmos, we are placing ourselves as like a transcendent subject outside of it to witness it. And if you don't place that subject there, you can't draw like perspectival lines to different points. Yeah. The Cartesian coordinate grid doesn't stand by itself without some origin point being defined. You know, it's like if you imagine like a cube in space, you have to pick some kind of reference frame to give the dimensionality. 
And people like to discount that. Like, oh, I can imagine the universe without experience or consciousness in it. It's like, what is doing the imagining of that? Yeah. You know, and like even in the physics, like we require a reference frame. Uh, people like to think that a reference frame can be any arbitrary, uh, you know, point in the Cartesian coordinate system. But we don't actually know that. I mean, we know what we can measure. And we know that quantum mechanics uh, involves acts of measurement in how the system actually evolves. So unless reality like is governed by these two fundamentally separate systems of laws where quantum mechanics involves the act of measurement, but relativity just involves these like abstract reference frames that where measurement or an observer is irrelevant. Like if in fact, these two halves are joined together in nature, then it would make sense that the true reference frame has to be able to actually function as that origin point, which means it has to have some kind of integral property where the many uh, objects of experience, the many uh, physical systems are joined somehow in a transcendental subjectivity. People just discount that right. without realizing whenever you imagine material systems, you're positing that. Yep, yep, yep. It's a performative contradiction where they're denying the thing they're using to analyze anything. Um, there's a, a point about this uh, too. There's another argument by David Chalmers, but he's kind of getting the scenario from this guy named Sidney Shoemaker, but it's just the inverted spectrum argument. It's another argument relating color, but imagine you had an exact clone of yourself. Um, and materially, he was identical to you in every way, but uh, basically your perception of color is like precisely inverted. So when he sees red, you see green, etc. And you use the same terms, you, you know, you point to the same thing and say red, but you're seeing, you're having opposite phenomenal experiences. Now, this is a perfectly intelligible scenario. You don't have to violate like a law of logic or, or like the laws of physics to, to imagine the scenario. But what's telling about this, this, this example is that the materialist is basically like entirely excluded from the discussion. He just has to say this reduces to nonsense, but it clearly doesn't. It's like a, a cognizable scenario that they just can't, it, they can't at all provide bring anything bring anything to the table in the discussion thereof so um, that's another argument too um that's so, interesting uh i'll argue for the materialist actually here which I, I don't ultimately buy it but daniel dennett would argue that color perception is really just an indication of the difference in the spectrum and the qualia is somehow illusory so the like essential greenness of green is not like self-standing it's just an indicator of this kind of uh spot on the color spectrum or wheel and so if all of the the relative positions on the color wheel are uh consistent whether it's inverted or not then uh, according to him like qualitatively it would be the same um which i it's hard for me to buy he would uh, support it with evidence like when someone wears uh, glasses that are tinted a certain color for an extended period of time, eventually they're, of course, at first the world looks that shade that the glasses are, but eventually uh, your your mind adjusts somehow and you see everything as you know you originally did. And then when you take the glasses off, you go the opposite um, tint to what the glasses were. So I guess that's supposed to show that um, 
color is just this indication of the relative values. So if you move the whole uh, set of experiences up or down in that spectrum, then so that's the kind of evidence he would use. Of course, like that's in line with his general idea that consciousness is somehow an illusion which just begs the question or raises the question of like it's an illusion for whom it, like it's just like again performative contradiction right. contradiction in terms yeah um but that is something that i find interesting at least uh the notion that like specifically with colors and and maybe with tastes that maybe at some level there's something too that it's it's less like the color is a self-standing entity, but it is defined inherently according to its relations. And so maybe there's a way in which the inversion of the color spectrum for two observers would phenomenologically inevitably be the same. It doesn't harm idealism necessarily to, to suppose right. that. but Yeah, that actually gets into uh, the relationality aspect. You know, things in hearing and the relationality will come up later when we talk about um, some some arguments Verveke has made relating to like and other people have made relating to like AI and how to create um, the most workable models of like uh, a human a human intellect you know robotically and they they relate to kind of placing re relationality in primacy over particles but wouldn't you say that so for a materialist aren't relations between things ultimately like kind of um, non-existent in some sense. So if Denon is, is appealing to relations, what is the substrate of relations? Like, what is the substance of relations? There's not relation atoms. So so how do you think they would respond to that? Oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I didn't mean to come in here and argue the materialism. No, all good. Yeah. Uh, no, it's all good. No, yeah. uh, let's see. So, I mean, you could reduce it to some kind of... Uh, you know, maybe an identity in general is always like the entire causal set of interacting systems. So uh, for an observer, then you're always looking at like the entire observable universe, whatever this system is in causal contact with is part of that identity. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, then the relations would be analytical and the system, the fundamentally material system would just be always extended through the entire universe and the idea of like self-standing material systems like independent bodies would kind of be a, a useful fiction mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. trying to fight on their side again yeah yeah it's interesting you mentioned daniel dennett because he was actually one of the guys i put in my notes as someone who kind of would object to these kinds of things and you know illusion is a you know consciousness is an illusion but illusion is a state of consciousness so anyway um yeah, so there's plenty of other arguments Chalmers makes, and there's numerous debates surrounding each of them. But uh, the overall dossier illustrates the fact that in the philosophy of mind, materialist reductionism continues to basically dwindle in support. Um, uh, increasingly, uh, to put it simply, we want to talk about phenomenal consciousness, but uh, incapable like materialism is incapable of like basically bringing anything to the discussion um, without trying to like basically say why we shouldn't be having the discussion. So. Um, get Rex, Daniel Dennett, and, and whatnot. Um, but um, so those are the couple arguments from the, the irreducibility of phenomenal experience to, to matter. The other um, philosophy of mind arguments 
against materialism involve rationality. This is like a you know well-trodden uh, path. You can find this in Plato in uh, C.S. Lewis's book Miracles, which we did a video on in this channel. You can check out. Um, you can find similar kinds of ways of thinking in like Alvin Plantinga with his evolutionary argument against naturalism, and also in John Verbeke. Um, so basically, if you want to reduce something that is, if you want to reduce rationality to something other than rationality, uh, you basically can't do so without landing yourself in a performative contradiction and a kind of reductio uh, by basically undermining your reasoning for proposing the thing in the first place. So the proposition that rationality is less than rational or sub-rational is itself based on reasoning, so you ultimately get nowhere. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so if reductionism were true, materialist reductionism were true, we'd have no reason for being reductionists. Uh, to quote John Verbeke, because science operates behind the veil of reason, it is doubtful we can get beyond rationality to explain its genesis. And that's from Dan Shappy and John Verbeke's article, uh, Fodor Cherniak and the Naturalization of Rationality, which I think is from 1997. Um, so there's that uh, argument. And also, uh, they have a kind of relevance realization coda to, to this argument from reason uh, against, against materialism, which is basically that um, you can't reduce the means by which we uh, determine what to analyze to the thing analyzed, which is kind of what you were saying earlier, Eric. Like, you can't reduce... Yeah, the agent, which is prioritizing and making logistical decisions on what to pay attention to, um, to the thing being paid attention to. Um, so yeah, relevance rate realization. John Verricki's done a really lot, a lot of really dope stuff on that, uh, and kind of just showing the um, the unworkability of materialist answers to that, or reductionist materialist answers to that. Uh, just sick. I'll let I'll let Nate in here with the. There we go. Um, yeah. So anyone have any comments on either of those arguments? Yeah, I've heard Raveki talk about that is uh, you have to admit the entities that are presupposed in scientific theories, and that involves the tools that we use for theorizing. So yeah, if you render uh, intelligibility, reason, like a even a, a virtue, epistemology, and like scientific uh, procedures and like socially constructed uh, aspects of the social uh, dimension of science, like if you try to say that's all epiphenomenal it's not real what's real is particles then like okay how did you get to that conclusion that all that's real is particles obviously all that other stuff is presupposed it's what you're using to get to the conclusion which right. is a really cut and dry argument in my opinion yep and and without without the presuppositions i think ultimately if you took this sort of mater materialist view to its full logical and metaphysical conclusion, it would be, we sort of talked about this last last episode, you sort of get reduced to this pure nothing potentiality um, because you have no distinctions. And, and that's just Aristotle's prime matter that er, uh, all heart made that point. Um, and yeah, it, it's, it's, um, I did this video um, a long time ago called uh, Dis Distinction Refutes Materialism or Distinction Refutes Naturalism. And I think it's true because um, like, to even speak about particles, you're already um, you're already presupposing identity, distinct things. And I'm interested to hear your take on this, Erval. I think that a consistent materialism ends in a myriological nihilism to where you say that there are no objects. Because ultimately, from a materialist perspective, if there isn't an inherent rationality to the world and um, there are essences and identities to be grasped in, in themselves everything is arbitrary. The way we divide the world, it, it would be just as arbitrary to divide the world into one foot by one foot by one foot cubes. Because um, then you'd be, just be, for a materialist, you can only make an empirical claim that 
oh, the matter doesn't fit together. It makes more sense for things to be ordered this way and not ordered as a one foot by one foot by one foot cube. But metaphysically speaking, um, I think if you're denying distinction implicitly in your ontology, you, I think you end up in myriological nihilism where you just deny all objects if you took this logically. Uh, do, you, do you agree with that sort of diagnosis, Eric? Yeah, and that's why many materialists come to a kind of nominalism where the only like real categories are things like the electron or the quark. Um, even if you took that path, though, I think using concepts like entanglement, um, you could maybe extend the scope of the kinds of holes that you would consider. Um, I kind of maybe have a latent like mechanist assumption myself about that that if you like perfectly understood physical dynamics and uh how particles work then there would be a reason why like any living organism is perceptible as a whole there would be a, a reason like fundamentally why uh any kind of intelligible structure uh is meaningful from quantum mechanics somehow uh, of course, like we're nowhere near the ability to do that. So that's just a, a kind of promissory um, solution uh, that the materialist would have. But yeah, it's it's hard to imagine because I do also believe that there has to be a top-down instantiation of form aspect. And if you don't have the forms supporting these holes, then pure emergence up Um doesn't account for the causal powers of these holes easily. Maybe there's some way to to do it, but yeah, they have a lot of work to do. So. Yep, it's good stuff. Good stuff. So, um, I want to maybe talk to you about some of that. We'll get to the form uh, form matter stuff later when we talk about objections to materialism from physics, because it becomes like really clear that it's not. I'm not even sure that they can like give me a definition of what matter is while they're trying to say that everything is reducible to matter um, because cognizable matter is some kind of union of form and content. Uh, Ed Fazer, who is, has a good book on that um, called Aristotle's Revenge, but we'll get into that in a second. So another argument from uh, mind for the, the, the invalidity of, uh, of uh, materialism is basically uh, it doesn't explain how um, basically workable AI works. So, um, it seems to me like the it seems to be in the literature that the closest approximations of human cognition in in, in robotics emerge in the context of perception and embodiment um, and action in that in in a surrounding environment by by whatever the uh, the um, the robotic um, basically you want to you want to in order for the for the robot to re replicate human cognition it has to be like embodied in an environment and act in that environment so to create um like the property of vision or something most closely approximating it in, in in robotics you have to start by giving the computer eyes that is we give it a certain amount of pixels as input these pixels can um form images of like a dog or, or a cat and you basically reinforce um and you give you also have to give it a mouth basically like it has to be able to output like what it is and then you you verify it in this embodied context that seems to imply that there's this constellation of things relating that produces cognition and it's not simply reducible to the particles of like uh you know brain replica like there has to be this this relationality of this this constructed mind to and a way of you know receiving feedback about what what the mind recognizes through the constructed eyes and all of these things kind of triangulating produce this kind of um 
irreducible whole that you can't say is you can't you can't easily reduce to some kind of purely quantitative um, analysis, if that makes sense. That's interesting. I think that might have been more compelling, like five years ago. I think the large language model uh, success has maybe weakened that argument somewhat because I mean ultimately the neural net system is just like a basic statistical procedure feed like mounds of data in and and parse it according to what amounts to like a, a relatively simple algorithm that's just scaled like uh, massively so I, I I don't know yeah I mean I didn't again mean to come in here and just argue the material no it's all good yeah yeah let's uh I think there there's probably something to that because the thing with the the LLMs is like it's there's no understanding as far as we can tell it's generating um visual outputs it's generating text it's generating behaviors in, in some ways but um yeah there's like no evidence of an a multi aspect awareness uh, uh perhaps uh <laughs> that like more embodied systems might exhibit or what would amount to an understanding. Like, yep. I don't know if the LLMs are capable of understanding, but it is like so strikingly successful at what it is doing that, you know, maybe that argument is not super compelling anymore. Interesting. Cause I think, I, I, you, I think you, you've, you've done some conversation with John Verveke yourself. And I think he's pretty persuaded by this, which is why he's like, in order to have successful AI, we actually need to like biologize AI. Like, um, I think that's kind of what he right. argues in his recent book on AI, right? Right. That's what he thinks is missing, um, because of this issue. Like, he's he believes in four E um, cognition, so cognition is inherently embodied. And part of the reason he believes that is that he thinks you need a bioeconomy or some kind of economy of uh, you know scarce energy and dividing up those resources, uh, you need that to fuel the relevance realization process, which is what you need to avoid combinatorial explosion in trying to predict um, possible consequences of actions, like actions have myriad uh, unintended side effects, and you can't calculate all of those exhaustively. And so you need this like pre-computational uh, way of tagging salience in things things have to stand out as salient in order to then operate on them logically and he thinks that to get that off the ground you need this kind of uh self-constituting autopoietic system where its goals are intrinsic to its structure um because that's the way that he thinks these you can make sense of how the goals bootstrap themselves so it's just in line with like his model of how relevance realization might take place that you would need an embodied uh and like energy scarce or like mimicking a bioeconomy kind of uh system and maybe he's right but then also like his more recent work with uh relevance realization and predictive processing maybe there's a way of not necessarily requiring like robotic appendages and real time like quasi sense feedback maybe 
uh, predicting like streams of text sourced from the internet um, is good enough uh, with so the predictive um, processing theory is like consciousness and salience and relevance basically arises when systems uh, like recursively try to predict different aspects of their own behavior and then when they successfully predict their own behavior which like maybe it has to be embodied in some sense but maybe not maybe it's just like predicting the output of some algorithm that they're uh implementing um but when it's it's successful then that's what they then tune into and the stuff that's not successful that they can't predict at all that becomes irrelevant so that's the the fundamental like screening mechanism mm -hmm. things are salient because they end up being kind of classed in those types of phenomena that we are able to predict successfully so it's just a mechanism for kind of like throwing out the noise um and maybe if maybe with that model uh embodiment would be less necessary but i mean even like servers in a big database somewhere have a form of embodiment um in that they they do occupy space there is finite there are finite resources that go into them um if you also okay so to kind of defend uh Verbeke's perspective here if you look at like the human ai corporate like super organism that's actually training these things and getting them to do what they're doing that whole um distributed cognitive process is embodied in the same way that like a typical corporation is embodied just not like one central locus uh of embodied experience so yeah once again it's like uh a little while ago uh in robotics and computer uh or rather like ai research this idea that like you need something analogous to like animal or like mammal yeah. <laughs> uh, embodied experience. Maybe we don't, maybe like mm -hmm. more like networked uh, cloud-based yeah. um, type of systems can also do it. But yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure. Myself. Right. It almost sounds like maybe, maybe a kind of idea of an animal embodiment being necessary for AI is, is a bit outdated, but you almost end up saying, having to say like, well, basically, the way, if you listen to Verbeke, like the way he conceptualized what we would call like angels or like spirits, mm -hmm. like the way those things are embodied through distri through distributed cognition processes and and this sort of thing, like is you at least have to be embodied in that way because um, right. for it, yeah. So that's that's interesting. So yeah, I mean that would I think Pajot would like that, right? Because he's you know like AI is is kind of we're building these uh, giant embodiments for these spiritual beings. Um, you know, for, for good or for ill. So yeah, I think that's, that's interesting. Yeah. 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 Um, dope. I, I just wanted to admit, I wanted to, um, ask, uh, cause I don't know much about Verbeke. Um, but you were talking about, I think the term is hyper objects or hyper agents. Um, In the last stream. Hart, you were, yeah. yeah. And I think like this corporate, um, what Erval was talking about, like even just a corporation would, would be an obvious example of a hyper object or a hyper agent, yeah. not reducible to the persons within it. Right. Um, and I, I, I'm interested in the history, I haven't looked into it, of, of this idea, because Graham Harmon, who is the object-oriented ontology guy, yeah. um, he believes in hyper-objects, or, yeah, yeah. so like he'll, it's weird, he, he doesn't call himself a materialist, but he has no, 
notion of the forms or of God or of anything. So he doesn't call himself. It's like a. It's just a, an assertion of a non-materialism when everything else in his ontology sort of reeks of materialism. So yeah. he'll just say stuff like, uh, like uh, Batman is a real object, and he'll yeah. just leave it at that. And it's like I agree. I agree with that, but within your sort of metaphysics of objects, don't right. even know what an object is um, with Harmon. Um, yeah. And not a dig at him, he's a good guy. But, uh, but yeah, uh, um, but I, I'm, am I correct in this, this notion of uh, the corporation? Yeah. The same as like a nation, it's right. a hyper object. And I think this also poses some problems for materialists. I don't know if when it comes to like human organizations, if it's more of a pro problem of uh, metaphysics, um, it's probably more so of a problem of just like articulating a coherent like ethics and understanding of of, of humanity and culture and stuff. Um, but yeah. But yeah, yeah. So so corporations, I think, are like a key example of distributed cognition, hyperagents. Um, I mean, Verveke will even use examples of like a rat colony or an ant colony. Um, Trey, where did you go, my man? I'll be right back. Oh, turn off your camera. Okay. Um, let me. Yeah. Anyway. So uh, let me just switch that real quick. So we're not having like weird overlay coverage here. Transition. There we go. Uh, let me know when you're back, Trey. But anyway, yeah. So so Verveke would definitely call those things. You know, um, he uses the term hyperagent, hyperobject uh, in his talks with um, with Jordan Hall. Um, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I actually have a question for you, uh, Airball, on this one because. It seems to me like, uh, well, this is usually how it's rendered, and you can give me a commentary on see, and see if this is this is valid. So, like, Verveke and, and Pajot have had this dispute. Like, is ontology a hierarchy of gods or a hierarchy of forms? And Verveke will kind of say both capture uh, elements of the truth. Um, and basically, the kind of the narrative is that, you know, Plato posits the forms, and then later, like, Proclus, like, kind of marries this with the gods, and you kind of get, you know, you go from, like, the pre-axial you know, gods, and then you get the platonic forms, and then they kind of get married in, in Proclus. But I know you're basically like, you know, Proclus is just the best interpreter of Plato. So do you think the, yeah. the idea of them being united from jump in Plato is there? Yeah, I mean, in the Phaedrus, the ladder of uh, beauty, making contact with the form of beauty, it's uh, Aphrodite. Yeah. It is the goddess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, that's guiding the whole process as well. I mean, there's also following in the train of the various gods. There is a distinction, though, between the forms and the gods. Um, the gods, just like Proclus interprets, um, move between levels. They go within the cosmos, they go beyond the cosmos, they guide souls up to the forms, um, so they are kind of exempt uh, from the limitations of souls and of the forms themselves. Um, so yeah, I think that uh, the Iamblichian, Proclean uh, interpretation of what the gods are, even for Plato, is accurate, where they are essentially these unities. Like the forms are intelligible essences. The gods are that which the forms rely on for their being, which is their fundamental unity. Mm -hmm. um yeah like souls obviously uh just to perform our dianoetic discursive reasoning what characterizes us um especially um as a being we already require beneath that presupposed structures of intelligibility so souls rely on the forms and then physical systems 
also rely on this kind of dianoetic uh, procedure, like um, think like uh, Wolfram's kind of computational universe, or um, there are a bunch of other people now who like look at computation as essentially ubiquitous um, in physical systems. But yeah, physical systems rely on something that's in the image of what we experience in ourselves as rational procedures. Um, and then the forms rely on the gods. So it's this kind of hierarchy of dependencies. Unities are more, are more fundamental than intelligible essences. Essences are more fundamental than uh, discursive rational activity. And that activity is more fundamental than physical uh, habitude, you know, physical uh, behavior, which is like obviously lesser in power and scope than math generally because physics is a set of mathematical equations math generally discursive reason generally is much broader yeah 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 very i, I wanted to uh I, I just wanted to mention uh or comment on uh what Erval said about the, the gods and sort of their mediating role and um uh i think it's quite a biblical image too and uh, i i wanted to bring this up because nate hasn't talked yet um, and Nate is our, our Bible guy. So, um, and, and Erval, I'd be uh, interested to hear your take on this, um, on, uh, on the biblical notion of angels, uh, who are, I mean, God's angels, they're used synonymously in, in scripture yeah. itself. So, um, uh, Nate would be the best one to sort of, disc uh, give us a picture of how angels are understood in, in the Bible. And then we can sort of comment on, on yeah. that and sort of the symbolism in, in scripture on that. I think that's a good. Yeah. When, before we went live, me and Nate were talking and call about this, but the stuff he was dropping from the Bible sounded very much like, uh, Eugenia. So you have, you know, the four divisions of nature and it's, it's that which creates, uh, and is not created, which people just like, Oh yeah, God. And then, then you have beneath that, uh, that which creates and is created, which, is basically like the the forms or the gods, you know, the the kind of and and hypostatized um, uh, principles. So um, so because because kind of the, the way like Sarah was talked about this too, uh, Trey, that like the um, the the logoi are and hypostatized in in the angels in the angelic mm -hmm. hierarchy. Um, yeah. So yeah, Nate, if you want to drop some some wisdom on us from from a biblical perspective on this kind of, uh, like the idea of angels and angelic embodiment. We, we, we got on this train from AI, which is cool. Like we're talking about angelic <laughs> modeling AI on the bodies of angels. So you know, anyway, it's going to be dope. Tell drop some, drop some knowledge, man. Uh, just make sure you can, uh, can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear yeah. you. Okay. Okay. So, um, you basically said kind of the most important part of the biblical side of this, which is that angels in a way, uh, they are the, created embodiments of the divine logi or logoi i don't know how you properly pronounce it i've only ever read it but um they are kind of the created um consciousnesses outside of god which exist alongside of god in the heavens that he shares his qualities with uh and this is how god operates in creation we see genesis 1 uh in the beginning god created heavens and the earth that is creation ex nihilo that is the only creation ex nihilo uh, there is no more creating something out of nothing after that. Um, everything that happens after that is the uniting of heaven and earth. Earth is created as, you know, the formless matter. There is nothing to it. It's the, the bare quantum waves, I guess you could say. Like, it is matter in its purest form, which is really nothing at all because it's meaningless without 
consciousness assigning meaning to it. And that's exactly what the six days of creation are. It is the assigning of meaning to the bare material of the earth by God through the created consciousnesses, which are the angels, which surround the throne of God. Uh, the whole story of creation, and I mean, this is in Colossians 1, uh, this is in basically the whole New Testament, we hear over and over again that, that creation exists for the purpose of the incarnation. That is the purpose of creation. It's the incarnation of God in a way that's tangible, I guess you could say. And so from the very beginning, we understand that the entire purpose of creation is this unity. It's to bring everything together, right? And this happens through the work of the heavenly hosts which surround the throne of God. The, the images that we're given of angels in Ezekiel, uh, in Revelation, and in multiple other places is that the angels surround the throne of God. And that's because the heavenly host is an image of the spirit. The spirit surrounds the sun. The father gives creation to the sun as a gift through the spirit. And then the son's job is then to transform that creation and then give it back to the father in the spirit. And again, the spirit works through the created heavenly beings, which are the angels. And if this is something that any Christians are listening to right now and they're like, whoa, since when were angels there from the from the beginning and we know this from job 38 job 38 says that at the laying of the foundations of the earth the heavenly host rejoiced yeah alongside god they created alongside him uh and i i talked about this a bit last stream but kind of a concrete demonstration that we have of this being the case is that on day one we see the spirit hovering over the waters again the spirit is imaged by the heavenly hosts which surround Christ on his throne. They surround the divine logos because they are the, I guess to use the word emanations, they are like the created emanations of the logos in creation. Yep. Um, and on day two, we see the spirit symbolized again by the heavenly host descend into the waters and bring the waters up to God. And that's why every time we see images of the divine throne room, we hear about angels holding up a sapphire floor, or there's angels, and above their head is a sapphire floor. Like, that's what it says in Ezekiel. And I guess I should have explained this a bit better last stream, because I, I left it a bit ambiguous, I think. But we see the same thing in Revelation. Above the head of the angels, there's this crystal sea. That is the waters below being brought up by them into the waters above on day two. That's exactly what it is, and that sets the precedent for the rest of the creation days, which is heaven meaning which is embodied in these consciousnesses going down into the meaningless earth and transforming it observing it observing the random quantum waves in order that they may be particularized and become something meaningful yeah that's dope um and i liked how you connected the i mean this is a whole debate like you know michael heiser in biblical scholarship versus i guess like more conservative people and you know you know let us make man in our image the plurality like is this referring to divine plurality of the trinity or is this referring to the angelic hosts and sarah is just kind of like you know porque no los dos like why not both just you can have your cake and eat it too uh and that's that relates to the way the the spirit ties into this because as like kind of god in the community god in the body of which the logos is head is the spirit and yes god works through that to transform the creation this relates to the whole idea of like you know the 
a third of the angel, in Revelation, a third of the angels swept out of heaven, and then the twenty-four elders and the, the the angels throwing their crowns. Like basically, it is you know the the church is humanity being brought into the heavenly the council as the prophets were in the Old Testament, and being used as in the spirit to basically transform the creation and and um, and unite heaven and earth, unite mind and matter uh, in in new and ever. Uh, in ever more splendid ways. So yeah, that's, I think, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Just, just to add something onto there, the whole theology of the divine council, particularly on the biblical side of it, is something that's really interesting. And uh, the second that you dive into the theology of the divine council, all of a sudden you open up possibilities like sainthood and all of these things that are, they're, they're pretty clear in scripture. Like the whole idea of prophethood being, um, prophethood being equivalent to being a member of the divine council, which we see uh, in the story of Abraham. Yeah. Um, Moses too. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, God. Yeah, like Philo, Philo calls um, Moses divine Moses. Like kind of like yeah. Plato referred to divine yeah. Plato, like he's part of the council of the well, gods. Moses was told to be a god. To, to Pharaoh. Right? Yeah. The people. Yeah. To Pharaoh. And we see the same thing in Abraham where God told Pharaoh uh, was it Pharaoh to ask Abraham to pray for him? And it's through the prayers of Abraham that he will be saved. Abimelech? And Wasn't it because... Abimelech? Yes. 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 That's it. Um, I'm confusing the, the Gentile enemies in my head. Well, Abraham but, um, has dealings with both the Pharaoh and Abimelech. Yes. Yes. To try to take his true. wife twice. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So we... We open up this whole, as soon as we start talking about the divine council, we open up the whole question of like prophethood. What does it mean to exist as a uniter of heaven and earth? And that is to exist on the divine council. We are supposed to act as created images of God and unite heaven and earth. We're supposed to observe the raw material universe. We're supposed to embed our consciousness in it. And in the process of embedding our consciousness into it, we are also taking it onto ourselves. That's the whole process of creating technology right clothing is technology clothing is just a simpler form of an airplane they do the exact same thing you're taking raw material you're shaping it with your consciousness and you're putting it onto yourself in order that your consciousness can be embodied further and further outside of yourself right that's what our job is we're supposed to expand our dominion we're supposed to have dominion over the earth we're supposed to embed our consciousness into it and that's because God chose that it's through consciousness that the earth is yeah. formed. And that's the whole purpose of creation is that the earth becomes fully mature and fully united to heaven. Right. And that happens through our conscious shaping of the earth. And that's how we become a part of the divine council by joining ourselves to that divine shaping of the earth, which was the angel's job before yeah, we can extend our conscious dominion even to the depths of the sea with like, you know, like, like think deep sea mining or something like that. Like, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, we send we send all our prisoners instead of sending them to Australia, we send them to deep sea oil rigs where they have to work for 40 years in the deep sea oil fields. Humane yeah, punishment. Real, um, real. <laughs> yeah. So moral of the yeah, story so- is always design your AI on the bodies of angels. If you're doing if you're not doing that, you're doing it wrong real real yeah so i just want to um 
I want to ask Erval about uh, his thoughts on this because that was a lot. Yeah. Um, but and I know um, Erval has a different take on 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 the Bible and Christianity in general. But uh, do you agree with like Nate didn't even mention this? But one of the central things is that we read heaven and earth in Genesis one as conceptual equivalents to um, actuality and pot potentiality. And this bringing together of actuality and potentiality is sort of the um, an, uh, an image of what you see in the creation days. So what's your take on this whole whole biblical thing? And uh, maybe just in general, like the relation of what we were talking about before with the Neoplatonic gods and stuff um, to the angels and, and stuff like that, Eric. Yeah, love to hear your take. Yeah, it sounds like the angels occupy the entire spectrum from daimons up through heroes, angels, strictly speaking, in Neoplatonism, up through mm. the intellectual gods or well i guess hypercosmic all the different orders of gods up through the henads themselves presumably um the kind of fundamental species of unity um they are emanations from the one all of them you know uh, i don't know if you would call them created in the same sense that the material cosmos is created um they would some of them some of those orders would be um auto poetic in proclus's sense meaning they are necessary beings so it'd be impossible for them not to be um which but i guess let me just stop and ask like would you consider that property as inconsistent with being created can god freely create that which cannot not be yeah, this is, you don't realize this, but this has been a big debate we've been having with another one of our friends because he's really into Bulgakov and Bulgakov very much takes this as view like creation, anything created has no um, necessity in itself, but necessity in God. And so this is actually like very prescient to what we've been debating amongst ourselves. But what do you think, Trey? Um, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 we haven't figured out the solution to this yet. Um, but um, I don't know. And, and. I don't know how this relates to um, how we see eternity in time, um, because for us, it, angelic beings aren't created in time. They're created into eternity, um, but nonetheless, they're created. Um, so is this a creation beyond time? Can we say that? Um, is I, th I think uh, to a certain extent it is. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I wish I had more to uh, to say on to say on this. But um, I. I I don't know if this will take us off to a different topic, but I think um, for us, a lot of the, we would place a lot of conceptual weight, weight as orthodox on the divine energies. And the way I, um, the way I would sort of, um, and maybe this will take us into a different um, topic, but it was on the docs with uh, our understanding of rationality, um, especially like against sort of liberal modern liberal understandings of rationality and reason is just something you individual individualistically do in your head um and that's like what david hume is critiquing and stuff versus plato's understanding of reason and dialectic which is like this uh relational thing and um like david schindler in his book um plato's critique of pure reason pure um reason, he'll yeah. mention yeah in pure reason he'll mention how like what the primary faculty of reason is is to grasp the whole it's to um uh, grasp identity um as a as a unity um and i don't i think you sort of lose this understanding of the relationality one of the world the intrinsic sort of uh, relationality of the world which rationality through participatory knowing um is able to or at least at, 
at one level is able to engage with these uh with these relations now um the uh yeah i i wanted to talk a bit about this uh understanding because for us like how i would articulate ultimately this uh relational epistemology or whatever you want to call it is that ultimately to know um to know the truth and to know um yeah, to know the truth or to know goodness. I mean, these are all divine energies for us. There are actualities of divinity, stuff we can say about God, divine names in uh, in uh, Dionysius, the Areopagite. Because all of the divine names, um, because truth, let's just take ontology and epistemology in this case, because being and truth are coterminous, because they are mutually interior. When you know being or to do ontology implies... Um, a teleology and it implies for us it implies an eschatology and it applies an ethics because all of these different ways of of knowing the divine energies the divine ideas whatever you want to call them um to to speak about god is to speak about this um ordering which is ultimately united in god himself i mean i think this does sort of have uh, resonances with uh, plato and with plato's understanding of knowledge um so so what do you think about about that, Eric? Well, the uh, by the time you get to the forms, which it sounds like you're placing the forms as uncreated energies of God, they uh, would be posterior to some of the orders of the gods that I was just talking about. So they'd be posterior to the henads. The henads would be beyond intelligible being, They'd be super intelligible um, and there would be like further personalities beyond the Christian Trinity. As far as I can tell, like if you follow uh, pseudo Dionysius, the Trinity, I believe, is probably best mapped onto what for Proclus is the abiding, processing and reverting of the one. And then the monad and the indefinite dyad limit and unlimitation are what pseudo Dionysius talks about in the mystic theology as like the stream of the universal and the stream of the particular, both situated like immediately below the Trinity. Um, and then the head ads, I don't know exactly what Dionysius uh, would say about them. I would say you need that order, which is a, a like multitude of personalities, which I would say are aspects of, they embody that original Trinity and the one that is beyond the Trinity. And I would say that's actually in pseudo Dionysius as well. Like, I don't think Dionysius is a, a pure Trinitarian. I think he does refer to the Trinity always as an outfacing, not, not the inner life of the essence of God. Um, but anyway, that's like debatable based because there's not a lot to go on, but, um, but yeah, I would say the henads need to be there as multi, uh, aspects, uh, interpretations or, or manifestations at different levels of that, that they're emanations of, of the Godhead. And you need that at the super intelligible level so that each of the respective intelligible essences has a unity to go with it. Because like I said before, the essences require a unity that unites them. So the unity is prior to them. Uh, and you know, those would be called gods. I don't know where exactly that would fall um, in in your uh, understanding of theology. Like, is there a, a mm -hmm. need 
for these multiple personalities that are super intelligible. Because then by the time you get to the forms, the, the manifestation of the forms is already mediated by personalities in a sense, because the Henads are gods for Proclus and Iamblichus, personalities, um, yeah, that that uh, unify them, that create them at their level of being, and tying it back uh, to what was discussed earlier regarding creation, I mean, it, it sounds very much like what's discussed in the Timaeus and uh, what Proclus and others comment on regarding the Timaeus uh, creation narrative where there are many intermediary demiurgic figures. Um, of course, like the demiurge is situated much lower than God the Father in Orthodox theology. Um, the demiurge is beneath the intelligibles, not above them. And like you, you need that distinction just because like you need personal, like personal uh, unitive um containment of these various grades of intelligibility so of the intelligibles themselves of the intelligences which are the procession of the intelligibles and then of the intellectual natures which are reversions upon the intelligibles you don't just have the the forms self-standing there they are like promulgated and led by the order above them, those unities. So they're connected through and mm -hmm. through by the Sarai or rays of the Henads. That's that the gods moving through the different orders of being. I think that adds a connective layer. Now, if you say all of this is already there, like in God as the uncreated energies, like I, I suppose you could just say like the Henads are all different aspects of God. Um, Damascius says that everything in the first hypostasis so that is the one, it's uh, abiding, proceeding, reverting, the monad and definite dyad, the henads, all of that is fundamentally one ontologically, and we distinguish these natures virtually. So Damascius is kind of mm -hmm. deviating from Proclus and Iamblichus there. So if you follow Damascius, that's closer, I guess, to the seemingly closer to the, uh, the orthodox reading, as far as I can tell. So you could compress all of that into God, but uh, I still think you need like a multitude of personalities beyond the trinity um to make sense of these respective unities um and then you could say the intelligibles themselves and that their procession are all uncreated energies of god and it's only then when you get down to the intellectual phase of the second hypostasis when a reversion and collection and gathering of all these previous materials takes place in the demiurge that then that's where like the god interfaces with the true angels which would then be relegated uh all to the third hypostasis of soul uh then right. souls could still be created in eternity as in they have eternal essences like for neoplatonists all souls have eternal essences but then they energize uh perpetually in time uh and so like i guess that would basically answer the question are there any angels that energize themselves in eternity or are all the angels active temporally as well because then that that kind of resolves this issue and i understand like what's being compressed into god and right right what's not well, um well there's a lot there um first first thing i'll say is um and uh and maybe we can just go i, I don't know 
the you mentioned how the intelligences for you and this makes sense from a platonic perspective are higher than the personalities um and i get what you mean there um but for us um personal we're sort of sort of personalist like theological personalism so like the i would just interrupt real quick to say that sure. that is actually i was saying the personalities in the sense of hypostasis right or like the what the intelligence are uh, intelligences are gathered in um would be superior so the henads are superior okay. you could gotcha. call them personalities in a sense they okay. function as a hypostasis for the intelligences okay sorry about that okay ignore that then um well i would say that well, for us, if we're talking about like the Logi, for example, um, the way I understand the Logi is the Logi is God's eternal, the Father's eternal um, knowledge of all of his power of creating. So it's uh, you can just think of it of his knowledge of all possible worlds, which is eternally, um, this is very Trinitarian for us, uh, uh, the Father eternally is begetting the Son. And in begetting the Son, uh, when he uh, shares his divine nature with the Son, not in time, in eternity, um, Obviously, with the essence are all the natural properties or natural actualities, the energies of the essence, which includes all of God's power, all of his dynamis, uh, to use the language of uh, Gregory Palamas, which is uh, shared with the sun. So um, all of this is- I'm sorry, let me ask more questions while we go so that sure. I, I, I'm tracking. So yep. is the logo super intelligible as well, or is it all intelligible? The logos the himself logo. as a person is, is, um, beyond, um, like rational, like, it, right. like, we, but for us, um, we experience, uh, there is, uh, an experience of God and that is like not a rational experience, but it's like sort of like the Hesychast thing, like sort mm. of direct immediate experience of the, uh, of the uncreated light. Um, yeah. So, so we right. have that. That'd be the same as like energizing according to the unity of our being. So when we, uh, energized intellectually we resonate with the forms but then we also have the one of the soul uh corresponding to a given henad and so that ties us into mystic intuition and things that transcend rationality um but yeah i, I would also say that that like if i tie the, the logos as a person to the procession of the one then that's beyond uh, intelligibility the logoi though are those all rational or, or uh intelligible or are they some of them beyond intelligibility uh well from my understanding the logi are all intelligible in the sense of uh participatory so we can participate in in the or at least we can participate in our logi but for us there is no uh, I, I don't know if uh, at least there's no real distinction in the scholastic sense of uh between the logos and the logi so the Logi are contained in the person of Christ. And obviously, like, the uh, the idea of a possible world isn't strictly identical with Christ. Just the point is that the person of Christ mm -hmm. contains them. And so what is imparticipable is um, the Logos himself, I guess we could say in totality. Um, like, this is something exclusively known by the Father and the Spirit. Mm -hmm. um, but through our as created beings, we participate within the uncreated energies and, uh, or the Loki and Maximus will even say that when we participate, like it's very ontological for him. So, and, and I'd be interested, maybe, I don't know if we'll do it here, but parse out the difference between, um, theosis and, and what, what you would describe more as a process of sanctification or whatever, however you would describe it. Um, but it is, um, 
for, yeah, Max Fisk will even use the language of becoming uncreated. So for us, the union, and this is based in the incarnation, based in the unity of the divine and human natures in Christ. When we, to use Pauline language, are adopted as sons in Christ, when we are united to the eternal son by grace, um, he is the son of God by nature. When we are united with the son, we become sons of God by grace. To unpack that sort of theologically is we receive the eternal energies by participation. And this is key. We participate in the energies. We don't strictly speaking say Christ participates in the energy of, of the fathers because participation sort of implies like a point in time where you start participating or whatever it's, or it implies like it's secondary to your actual ontology. But for, for Christ, it's by nature, right? So Christ by nature, just by virtue of being the the second person of the trinity he receives the the energies of the father eternally through the spirit and yeah so when we're united through the spirit to the son we receive these energies but the key point is that for us because there was a moment in time when we didn't and it's not natural to us it is not of human nature to be uncreated but the paradox of theosis is that when we are united with the uncreated energy um we become uncreated it that is De deification um deification for us um yeah not a question but that's sort of just our our view of of theosis there okay yeah it sounds like the logoi then uh could if they're contained in that procession like i'm calling the logos kind of essentially the procession aspects of we agree one. yeah okay use that language um then yeah containing all those logoi down through the intelligibles um would kind of bit what i was saying before where they're all compressed and i don't think i got an answer cool. on the question are the angels always uh energizing in time or that are there any angels that energize eternally in the same way that like the forms right. well i would say from my reading of scripture and i think nate would agree with this i would say that no they don't energize separate from um time and separate from creation because i think that the telos of angels, and I think Saint Paul, I I, I believe Saint Paul wrote he Hebrews, but I think in the book of Hebrews, this is said pretty clearly that the point of angels, the purpose of angels, is the glorification of mankind, and that's because I mean, mm -hmm. well, I, I don't know if that's because, but they are created fully actualized because um, God is pure actuality, and when you are united with pure actuality, you are fully actualized in your potentials, and that is God. God is the God of heaven, that's where the angels dwell, and the point, obviously, as Nate was talking about, is the union of heaven and earth earth this is the eschatological uh glorification but for us yeah angels their telos is to glorify man and this sort of we talked about this maybe in the first episode this relates to our understanding of the fall of satan and why the fall of satan was sort of this absolute fall for us versus when we fall into sin it's not like that well one reason is because he's in eternity but approaching it from a theological uh, or sorry a teleological perspective the only purpose of the angels is to glorify man and Satan in the garden and the demons, they're the only activity or the choice they, they made is to do the opposite of that, to try and bring man down. And uh, with the way I read sort of the whole narrative of the Bible, I see it as the uh, preparation of the seed prophesied in Genesis 3. And it, you can sort of read, if you read it typologically with these different figures who are described in serpentine language related to the serpent symbolically, um, you can see the narrative of the serpent of the demons doing literally the opposite of what they're supposed to do. So actually, to put it more specifically, yes, the purpose of the angels was to glorify man, but how is man glorified? For us, it's in the person of Jesus Christ. So the point of the angels was to prepare the way for the incarnation. And then, um, but with Satan and the demons, their whole point becomes to not 
um, to not to, to thwart the incarnation. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so I think mm -hmm. given the fact that for us, angels, angelic ontology is inseparable from human ontology. And I think this is very clear in someone like Maximus too. Um, like man is this union of heaven and earth where things meet again, very incarnational for us. Um, yeah, but I'll stop talking now and just pass it to Nate real quick, who has his hand raised very politely. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank, thank you so much. Um, I think there is a sense in which angels operate in time, and there's also a sense in which they operate in eternity. And um, we we kind of see this. I mean, Sarah from Hamilton has said so many times about how, like, the choice of angels is an instantaneous and fully actual choice that they make, whether they will... Um, revert the love from God back towards God by participating in creation the way they're supposed to. Um, or they can choose to try to take that for themselves and ultimately separate themselves from the divine love, which is allowing them to participate in creation in the first place. But I think there's a sense in which we can say that their choice is instantaneously actual, but the actual, um, like, embodiment of that choice is not instantaneously actual because obviously satan he he made or the devil he made that choice to fall from god in genesis 3 very clearly and it's very clear throughout the entire old testament that there is no chance of redemption for him like he is gone and i mean jesus himself even says like the lake of fire in the end is for him it was created for him so obviously there's a sense in which like he fully actualized his destiny, but the path towards that still had to happen through time because of the way that heaven and earth exist in relation to each other. And because earth is necessarily in time, so also heaven must go alongside of that. In a sense, I guess you could say something like that. This is all just kind of thoughts off the top of my head about this. And I'd love to have yeah. you guys kind of flesh that out a little more. But one more thing is... It's in this idea that we see kind of this marginal theology in, Christ in Christianity that we see, especially throughout like the Middle Ages in England um, or in the Anglo-Saxon tradition and in a lot of European traditions, we see stuff about like fairies. Uh, I mean, in the story of St. Brendan the Navigator, he goes to an island uh, and there's all these birds and God says, these are the angels who neither fell nor um fought against the devil like they're they're kind of stuck in this intermediary place because there is a sense in which they do exist in time i just don't know how to flesh that out exactly there's a couple uh seminal texts that have dropped recently that probably eric would be into but probably just you know for the viewing audience there's obviously uh the whole mystery of christ Creation, the whole mystery of Christ, creation is incarnation in Maximus Confessor by Jordan Daniel Wood, which is kind of like, a, like probably the up to this point the seminal treatment of Maximus's whole um, cosmology, um, and also there's the uh, Pino book, which is on the essence of energies in, in Palamas, and he dispels a lot of uh, garbage that is accrued around Palamas's doctrine. People saying Palamas asserts that there's like passive potency in God or something stupid like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think maybe Eric would be into those books, but um, uh, yeah, let's, uh, we should probably get to, uh, I, I don't know how long we have you, Eric, but we should probably 
move along a yeah. little bit, a little <laughs> bit. Yeah. Because otherwise yeah. we'll get, we'll, we'll just talk about, you know, angelic AI for forever. Um, I, I would just rearticulate that everything that was discussed before is concordant with the platonic account. Pretty much. It just depends on what you're labeling, what, uh, but yeah, that's the same idea, except like the incarnation, you know, which is kind of the missing piece um, in Platonism. But yeah, you might, um, well, we'll get into that, but you might like, so do you know who JP Marceau is? Hmm. Heard the name, but no. So he's kind of like, he's one of, you could say, like, Verveke's students, if you will. He was kind oh, of... Oh, um, I have watched some talks with him. Yeah, now I remember. Yeah, yeah. He's he's dropping a book in, in March. No, in, in, I think, in February. That is about... He kind of goes all the way from reductionist materialism to kind of platonic or Aristotelian, broadly classical, metaphysical um, uh, ontology. And then he and he bridges into Christian ontology from there and, and the Incarnation. Uh, you might be into that when that drops, and and we'll try and get him on when it uh, when it drops, and and to talk about it because yeah, I'm in his class right now. He's got this metaphysics course, that's pretty dope. And we're not finished yet, so I can't uh, drop too much incarnational wisdom on you just yet. But it's it should be interesting stuff. Interesting stuff happening. Um, all right, so there's a few more things uh, I want to uh, get to uh, before we answer any questions if we have any. Uh, we don't want to keep Eric here too long. He's got to uh, attend to his homestead but yeah so basically uh we just went through a, a series of arguments relating to the irreducibly the irreducibility of mind to matter um both arguments from like rationality and also arguments from the irreducibility of like phenomenal experience to just a purely quantitative um partic particulate analysis or something like that um there's also arguments from physics so like it seems one argument is just it seems there's kind of two two arguments here but basically the, the the main question is just like it doesn't really seem like materials have a good account of what even matter the hell is anymore um it's not really transparent what matter is at this stage uh in terms of the the study of physics traditionally you want to say like materials want to say there's stable particles that are fundamentally like everything in reality uh, is just explicable in terms of, of these these stable particles but yeah, I mean, the dominant Copenhagen interpretation affirms that we what we have found at like the lowest levels of physics are not, you know, um, are not stable particles, but are like potentiality fields, which is precisely the opposite of what the kind of classical materialist would want to find there. Um, so like particles rest on and emerge from like irreducibly probabilistic waves. Uh, Erval could probably speak to this better than I could, but those aren't material in any conventional sense of the term. Uh, and this I makes... think that is the classical conception of the material. Is that it's um, waves? That it's pure potential. Yeah. Oh, yeah, classical in that sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, classical in, in that, absolutely, in the in the sense of uh, Plato and Aristotle, absolutely. Um, sorry, I should have said traditional materialism, like, seems mm. to... Yeah. Yeah, say that it's extremely uncomfortable with that notion. Um, so like, you know, there's like articles that are like just like shut up and calculate in, in like the literature that are just basically, you know, a materialist physicist saying we can't uh, understand anything going on here in terms of like an ontology. So we're just going to like ignore it and we're going to go on <laughs> doing math, uh, which is hilarious. Um, there are some attempts to make a non-probabilistic reading of, of, of this, of, of the, 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 the relevant physics. Um, like many worlds is, is one out which I know Eric is into and can maybe speak to but um, nothing conclusive and and it's it's telling that there's nothing conclusive a, a materialist could um, latch onto uh, intuitively because if the, if reality is fundamentally just like stable particles 
you know, there wouldn't be nearly as much debate as there is. So the very fact of there being disagreement in physics kind of, you know, I think cuts against the materialist case. So do you have any comments on that? Any of you? Yeah, I think the big puzzle is really why a wave function collapse takes place. Um, many worlds alone suffers from the defect of not really postulating an ontology. So it answers the question of uh, wave function collapse by saying, well, all possible collapses occur, but it doesn't answer the question of what is collapsing into what? Like, what is the substance of these particles? Uh, there is no like proper ontology of the many worlds interpretation by itself. Um, as, but, you know, like ultimately many worlds, even lacking the ontology reduces to a kind of anthropic explanation of why we're measuring what we're measuring. And so the fact that we're in our particular world um, is just a factor of, of our nature as like who we are. So like all explanations uh, of why the wave function evolves, how it does, why it collapses, how it does refer to us. And so it is in a sense like idealist where everything is centered on who we happen to be. Um, but then, uh, yeah, I think the big like open puzzle is the measurement problem. And some interpretations will try to eliminate this or say you don't need an observer. It's not about like an act of measurement per se. It's about uh, decoherence as a kind of you know, pseudo deterministic process where if you have enough systems interacting, um, the noise that you get with very simple systems that leads to this like open, undefined space of what particles are doing, that gets narrowed down because so many different systems are interacting. And at some point you get like this decoherent, um, decoherence cascade where all of the wave functions are reduced to effectively point-like specification and you don't need any, but like that I think is defeated by the Wigner's or maybe Wigner's friend uh, thought experiment. I don't know if he was like a German American or like an actual German that migrated to America, probably the latter. So Wigner, I guess, but uh it, it like it's the the deal with like Schrodinger's or uh, Schrodinger's quack. <laughs> Jesus, uh, sorry. I'm like thinking about a lot of things and trying to remain articulate, and I didn't <laughs> succeed. But we'll keep going. Um, so Schrodinger's cat is this idea that like we are outside of this system, and uh, it is therefore in this superposition of the possible states it might be in, um, and like a response to that might be decoherence. I don't know if I'm going to be able to articulate all of the Wigner's uh, friend thought experiment. It's a bit complex and we probably don't have to go into all the details. I shouldn't have even gotten into it, to be frank. Um, <laughs> but like the, the question is like, who is ultimately making the observation who like where where do you draw the line to say that one system is entangled with another system from what perspective? You know, you need some kind like in the, the double slit experiment, when there is a, a measurement made, that makes reference to our ability to recover data about the system, our ability to recover data about the system. Because a, a measurement device could be something as simple as a particle, a charged particle that moves one way or the other when the electron moves by. 
that narrows down for us. We can measure retroactively where particles went based on the location of this other particle. But it's all just particles. Like what constitutes the measurement ultimately reduces down to what are we able to recover? Just like Schrodinger's cat, it's what are we able to recover about the system? If we were causally disconnected from the system, then it would be in superposition um, as far as we can like argue with this kind of, and I still didn't like articulate Wigner's friend properly, but if you want like the, I think the best uh, argument against the kind of uh, pseudo-deterministic decoherence account of wave function collapse. It's Wigner's friend. It like collapse has to ultimately terminate on consciousness that does the measuring uh, because it's impossible to really define measurement otherwise. Um, and in a platonic sense, like that which measures all things is the one and the one is the source and ground of all uh, all consciousness. Also intelligence uh, is that which brings order and limit uh, to the unlimited, and that looks like, okay, we are what defines the classical position of particles. We are establishing that measurement as the intelligent observer. There's a oneness that measures, and then there's the intelligence that gathers the multiple forms together into a, a complex. So I think, um, yeah, like, there's, I don't think there's a good uh, purely mechanistic account of quantum mechanics, why there is this indeterminacy. Um, there are just, it's a big can of worms and we don't have that long to keep exploring it. But uh, yeah, that's just some thoughts, uh, a bit scattered, but that those are yeah. some thoughts on it. Yeah, yeah. So basically, um, if you're gonna, if you're gonna claim to reduce everything to matter, you better know what the hell it is. But it seems like that is, it's an elusive category increasingly. And yeah, so if you, you can't be saying everything is this elusive category, I can't exactly define for you. That seems like bullshit. So I'd rather just be, you know, form and matter, baby. Aristotle's revenge. Um, one other uh, quote I want to maybe get your comments on if we have enough time. Do you have enough time, Trey? There's one quote from Chalmers. He's quoting, uh, he's kind of like summarizing something from Russell, but I want to hear Eric's take on it. Yeah, I, I'm in no rush. It's just... Uh want to be respectful of eric's time yeah, but yeah yeah, yeah go yeah. for it so so david chalmers quotes is kind of has this uh presents this thing from from russell and he says physical theory only characterizes its basic identities relationally in terms of their causal and other relations to other entities basic particles for instance are largely characterized in terms of their propensity to interact with other particles their mass and charge is specified to be sure but all that is uh but all that a specification of mass ultimately comes to is a propensity to be accelerated in certain ways by certain forces and so on uh, reference to the proton is fixed as the thing that causes interactions of a certain kind that combines us with in certain ways with other entities and so on but what is the thing that is doing the causing and combining as russell notes this is a matter about which the physical theory is silent Yeah, that's uh, that's cool. That uh, it kind of relates to something. I did a short on this um, based on this conversation I was having with my friend, um, and we kind of just like, kind of just dialectically didn't mean to just came to the first cause argument. Um, I've told this story before, but uh, um, we were. I was just explaining to him how nothing about himself can just be explained purely self-referentially. Um, it's always defined in terms of your relations. Um, like even the fact of us talking right now, like obviously we are talking, but at the same time you received language through your socialization. Like there's no point where we can just abstract this self-referential 
created monad, which is you. Um, no, you are your being. Not not to say we can reduce you to relations. Um, it's like what we we're kind of talking about with subject and predicate before have for Bulgakov, like language only works because they don't re reduce to each other. It's the same thing with with reality. Um, there only are relations because there's nonetheless a uh, a principle of of distinction. But um, um, yeah, Eric, uh, we're, we're going to wrap up after this point. But if there's any other, other points you have on uh, on this on relationality and stuff, all heart was talking about. Well, I think actually some of the points that I was uh, mentioning before, like the necessity of intelligence or an integrative uh, agent uh, to account for physical systems uh, also applies. Um, but yeah, relationality um, being inseparable from identity um, is an interesting concept. Uh, I'm actually reading, well, have read an essay by James Filler and was starting on his book, uh, this concept of a kind of relational ontology where he reinterprets the concept of the one into pure relation. Um, and I don't know exactly how I feel about it. You, The way you talked about it just now um, kind of softened it compared to that kind of hardline relation reductionism. I don't think you can reduce things to any one category, including relation, you know, I, I don't think you're mm -hmm. going to find like the magic category that everything fits into, um, which is what I think filler is doing. And that's what I'm actually talking with John Verveke tomorrow uh, morning about. So that'll be fun. Yeah. And he's... he really likes filler. So I'm going to have to like fight him on that. Yeah, that makes sense. I didn't know he was into filler, but the conversation he had with, uh, he's had a conversation with DC Schindler who wrote that book, Plato's Critique of Empire Reason. He was trained by Eric Perls, which is like, he's one of the big scholars in Neoplatonism. But they, Verveke was very much appealing to certain, he was basically like, they had a conversation on the Trinity and like Verveke was quite enthusiastic because, probably because of, of some of the stuff Filler's been bringing to the table. Uh, and also there's certain strands in Buddhism which seem to posit something similar about fundamental reality being relational. Um, do you see that, what, is that what Damascius is talking about when he says the one includes multiplicity? Or do you think he's talking about something different there? Yeah, I don't think that that's the same as saying it is relationality per se, because relations are, I guess, opposed to identities. Identities, you can say, are constituted by relations. But I think it leads to an infinite regress where, okay, the relations that constitute and identity themselves take place with respect to a relational medium or like a syntax of how the relation takes place. And that syntax is composed of syntactic operators, which are identities. And then any further definition of those syntactic operators, and like you're probably familiar with the, the reasoning I'm getting into, which is Chris Langan's, syndifionic regression yeah. and you're going to end up in unbounded telesis which can't be you know uh bound up in any given uh category relation identity it's going to transcend both and you're going to be left with something that's maybe just best left like with the original uh designation that i think it received in the history of philosophy which is brahman so coming up with new names for brahman is just not that compelling in, as far as like cutting edge philosophy in my opinion well, um, this kind of relates to actually very much relates to an argument that we've been sort of developing a bit, which is sort of putting a Trinitarian spin on a cosmological argument or the first cause argument, which is by grounding it in relations by sort of the fact that 
um, well, if if we're all contingent upon relations with each other, you get to this point of infinite regress. Um, but I think that is almost just another way of putting uh, of talking about Aristotle's infinite regress of causes. So I think I don't know if you need to have like I, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know what you mean by Brahman uh, or wh where this would be placed within my um, conceptual matrix. But for for us, the third that unites the two who don't have the ability in themselves to, they don't have um, necessary being in themselves because they're contingent upon the relation with each other. Um, the God, the first relation we could say is the third who unites, he has the energy we could say to um, bring them out of each other uh, in, into union with each other. So God is the principle of, of unity here. And sort of the reason why we find this kind of compelling is, um, and I haven't, I, I don't know if this is like a valid argument, but going by the uh, principle of proportionate causality, the cause must contain the effect in some sense. And if we are talking about, um, like we do believe like relational ontology is like a big thing at Telos Bound, but we agree with you that it's not reducing reality to distinctions, uh, as rather to relations. Um, rather, it's seeing relation as a necessary, um, essential part of your ontology. Um, right. But yeah. You wouldn't so call God, like yeah. God pure relation. You wouldn't call... No, no, yeah. because I think that That's... would undermine the orthodox definition of person and nature, where nature is what is shared and then person is the principle of distinction. Yeah. And yeah. I think just like leaving the t the term God in place is perfectly acceptable, or even the term the one, because mm -hmm. no label is going to adequately capture the essence of the first principle of all things is going to transcend all categorical schema. It's just like basic apophatic theology reasons. And I say Brahman because that was uh, the first example of apophatic theology uh, in history. Okay. I think Brahman is this cool. like beyond all concepts, permeating all things, transcending right. all things um, kind of Godhead concept. So yeah. Uh, yeah. The, cool. If you say it's, it's just pure relation, it, May, might fool you into thinking that you're doing some kind of like fundamental ontological reduction and that then you can derive conclusions like syllogistically oh like the fundamental ground of reality is cataphatically pure pure relation and therefore mm -hmm. we conclude uh can conclude this and this but like you can't syllogize from the first principle because right. it doesn't fit into categories right yeah cool um Okay. I think, I mean, this was a great stream. Um, what we do, Eric, is we go to, um, we have an ad for our sponsor and then we'll do questions after. I don't even know if we have questions, but um, I don't, I don't think we do. I, I hope we're not having problems with uh, stream elements like we did last time. The link but uh, if we don't, uh, yeah, then we'll just play the ad. So I'll yeah. hurt. I'm assuming you have that ready. Yeah. Um, there's just one other thing I want to drop before we say that, but it's just a quote from J.B. Marceau uh, from his text that I'm, I've been reading through. When modern physics talks about potential at the bottom of physics, could they be talking about Aristotle's potential? Or when roboticists talk about the emergence of irreducible and embodied properties like vision, could they be talking about platonic forms? All right. For a long time, we've been looking for a company to sponsor Telos Bound that not only delivers a product or service we would be excited to share with you guys, but also aligns with our values and goals. After many months of searching, we finally discovered Lore Coffee Roasters. Lore is owned and operated by two young Orthodox Christian families, striving to give glory to God by treating their craft with respect and serving excellent coffee to everyone. They operate in the subsect of the coffee industry known as specialty coffee, meaning they source the highest grade coffee 
coffee grown and processed by expert farmers and producers from around the world. Lore then pays homage to their craft by delicately roasting every coffee to optimum flavor, clarity, and distinctness, revealing the essence, or perhaps if you're orthodox, you'd want to say the energies of every coffee. They have a subscription platform on their website, making it easy for you to choose your coffee, how much of it you would like, and how often you want it delivered right to your doorstep. They ship across America and internationally as well. Above all things, the families behind Lore are striving to glorify Christ and serve his holy church in everything they do, and we at Telos Bound can get behind that. So thank you so much to Lore for the great work that they do and for supporting Telos Bound. Please consider supporting them and us by using the link in the description to purchase your coffee. Yo, I think we're back. Okay. Um, okay, so... Well, I'll just say, for the people watching, we don't have any Super Chats right now. I don't know if this... I hope the stream elements is working. I know we didn't uh, yeah. before. Um, I'm thinking... I don't know. I think Monday night is just not a good night. I, I feel like people aren't free on Monday nights. No, no. sucks, because we yeah. are free. We are free Monday, Monday nights. nights. Yeah. Might have to move um, it around. We'll see. Um, is there anything you want to touch on in the meantime? Because uh, just for the people watching, we're going to go in like five minutes um, if there are no no questions. Yep. But is there anything else you wanted to touch on? Because we had a b well, big doc, so I don't think we touched on everything. We covered a lot of the stuff in the doc. So um, okay. like most of the arguments that I kind of summarized there from the literature. Um, I have a question. So... What do you think of the various like anthropic principles people discuss in in, in physics? Um, you know, wh how do you view like is is basically um, it, there's some people who want to put like man at the center of their ontology, where like heaven and earth, you know, uh, potentiality and actuality kind of flow into each other through through man. Would you have a view like that, or would you kind of not view that as as being accurate? Yeah, um, I've liked anthropic arguments, even strong anthropic arguments, um, because I'm uh, like sympathetic to a many worlds interpretation. Uh, not fully, I think you have to qualify it, uh, but just the multiverse concept in general. I know that pretty much uh, all Orthodox Christians will have to reject it um, for various reasons. Uh, maybe I'm wrong on that, but typically when I've... Uh, spoken with like more conventional christians i consider myself a christian but i, I admit that i'm like completely uh heretical for <laughs> all the mainstream denominations uh maybe the uh you know anglicans would take me but but yeah no i yeah. i think that the multiverse uh has like a teleological advantage in that if you take provaccio boni as the explanation or account of of evil then evil redounds to the greater good without itself like ultimately having the negative consequences that it seems to right so if evil is rendered kind of ultimately causally illusory because in the grand scheme of things it all balances out to a greater justice and is is good that it's there and then ontologically like it doesn't have actual substance so then all that you get is the the kind of positive effects out of the evil um like evil situations allow for heroism and and other like good qualities so there are always some kind of benefits but just that 
dynamics of teleology suggests that you don't really have to fine tune things all that much um, as far as how you're constructing your cosmos to get a, a cosmos that is net positive. You know, so just my understanding of the uh, Proclean theory of evil, which uh, essentially became the pseudo Dionysian theory of evil and the broader Christian theory of evil. Um, if you take that, then I don't see why it wouldn't be overall better for God to create as much as possible, um, as well as like the best total creation. Um, which is what Leibniz thought as well, that this kind of principle of plenitude, that God wouldn't just create one best possible world, but he would create the greatest possible world so that all possible good things would come to fruition, not just like some finite set of good things. Mm. Um, that's also why like, I would subscribe to the eternity of the world as opposed to a temporal uh, origin of creation in general. Uh, but yeah, if you buy into the many worlds concept, then like your world has the particular characteristics that it does because you are what you are. Um, and, you know, I've been sympathetic to like Schopenhauer in the past. Um, not all aspects of his philosophy are as compelling to me today. But one aspect is, which is that like fundamentally our will our freedom consists in us being what we are. And because like in Platonism, the soul has its essence in eternity, its energies in time and essence causes energy. We cause our being from eternity into time. That's the view that I, I would hold to uh, more or less today. And so like, I, I would say people can in a sense be like morally responsible for their innate characteristics because like you are what you are like this is an interesting question in philosophy like why am i me and not trey you know why why am i who i am and what account can we make of that other than there is this kind of will from beyond time to manifest into time in a particular way um but like the typical christian account i don't see is like very compelling is basically it's just up to god's arbitration that you happen to be born with the characteristics you were born as like you're not responsible for your characteristics god can judge you according to the characteristics that he gives you but there's no real rational explanation for why you were born with your characteristics um right so so if you take my uh like quasi schopenhauerian uh, platonic account of what freedom consists in then like we kind of project into time based on that act of will and that does kind of construct a world around us specifically and so accounting for the world kind of means accounting for oneself and then that also makes sense of the idea of like the microcosm macrocosm uh right I, I was I was sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say um, that this relates um, not especially the theodicy stuff. You were right in thinking we wouldn't be able to agree with that. But um, in terms of like, especially when you said that, um, forget how exactly you formulated it, but like freedom is just true being, right? And this is very patristic. This is in Maximus, um, and that's because true being in the fullest eschatological sense for us, because being for us is defined exclusively as participation in God. Um, that is um, because we are contingent upon God, so our being, we only are insofar as we participate within God. 
Um, so given this fact, um, well, this kind of also goes back to the Logi idea and the Logi are the divine ideas. And again, like you can understand it as God's dynamis to create all possible worlds included within that would be us and our ideal sort of the fullness of our being, which is precisely being shaped in accordance with our Logi. And we have a very concrete way of interpreting that, um, which is union with Jesus Christ. So the purpose, the telos of our being is to be united with Jesus Christ. And this isn't something distinct from the essence of our being, because the essence of our being is participation in God. So for Maximus, he has this threefold division between being, uh, well-being, and eternal being. And this threefold division has to do with your being is just your creation ex nihilo. And then your well-being has to do with your free um, um, decision to act in accordance with your telos, with your logi. And as you operate more in this way, um, you... you um, you literally become more yourself um, and you manifest your freedom mm -hmm. as the image of God. Um, like, yeah, he dev and this is something we have been talking about lately, like the patristic and view uh, and classical view of freedom is not like modern, you know, the modern enlightenment view of freedom. Um, it has to do with uh, teleology and with um, pursuing your pursuing and actualizing your, your good. But uh, is, are there any other, any other questions? Yeah, Woody Woo's got some questions for, for Eric that I think are interesting. Um, I, I definitely want to stay in touch with Eric while I get more reading done because I think it'll be, when I get like Wood's book finished and, and Pino's stuff, like it'd be good to, to kind of hash some of this stuff out. So question for Erval, what do you think of Origen's eschatological conception of apocatastasis and do you think his system would compute more soundly if it was metempsychotic? I.e. I, I thought it was. I thought it was. That's a good question, is whether or not he was uh, an upholder of reincarnation. We have some originists we know that, you know, basically believe in, in reincarnation of the of the unsaved. Um, but uh, interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I think, so I haven't read Origin directly. I plan to get to him eventually. Um, but, I mean, his cosmology sounds more platonic in that there is this, like, from the statesman, the world kind of decays and then there's a kind of final calamity and then a world regeneration so yeah i like that i think cool. that you know makes um sense. our friend our friend gabriel sprock who i think you've talked with airball yes he uh he had a question um and i just clicked out of it where does airball uh, think our distinct yeah. qualities come from and why is it not arbitrary or up to a sovereignty or up to a sovereign will in his system Right. Well, so ultimately, yeah, I mean, ultimately, I do still kind of hold to a monistic Advaita Vedanta kind of position. And I think all will is grounded in like that kind of will in itself that Schopenhauer uh, refers to. And uh, like in Tantra, which is compatible with Advaita Vedanta, there is this distinction between Purusha, kind of the eternal man, eternal subjectivity, and then Pakriti, the feminine, like, energy of creation, and Purusha projects Pakriti. And that's kind of the basic 
view that I, I take in interpreting Platonism. So the one ultimately is that kind of Purusha eternal unity, the one that then unfolds into uh, multiplicity through projection, emanation, and there can it's because i do think that like ultimately there is a necessity for a kind of monadic subject um that's not extended not complex not composite for the reasons that we mentioned before that composite complex things have like being differentiated require a perspective that delineates yeah. the, their different aspects. So I do think there has to be an, a fundamental identity of all subjectivity. And that's that Brahman concept that Atman, our soul, our personal soul is, or not so much the personal soul, but like the core of our, our essence is the same as that Brahman universal divinity. So that like, yeah, this is not obvious in the Neoplatonists, but I, I when I first read Plato, in his entirety, I was reading it through a lens of Advaita Vedanta and it all made sense to me through that lens. So I do think that like the one is what grounds all of our being. And it's not that different from like Thomas Aquinas where like our being fundamentally is grounded in being itself, which is God. And so like when I look at that, I would say the, the one kind of fundamental simplicity at our core is the simplicity that grounds all things. So that being said, I would say that our particular act of will is like it stems from God's power. So this is also similar to the uh, Thomas notion that like there's a donation of being, donation of, of power that we uh, we receive and then employ. But another way, um, which is going to be less friendly to um, you know Orthodox uh, folks and Catholics and just most Christians is that essentially the one needs to fall into all different sorts of error as well as virtuous productive manifestations and emanations so the one projects all possibility good and bad and like in that sense like what the nominalists were trying to give to the godhead godhead can have where the godhead isn't constrained by the logical laws just as like me when i'm trying to do math and i make a bunch of mistakes in a way i'm unconstrained by the logical laws like i'm getting stuff wrong i'm i'm entering into non-being in what i'm doing in a certain sense but it's like non-being still has a form of reality for plato it's it's difference from the same it's difference from the forms it's deviation into um ultimately that kind of pure potentiality of matter is the the most unreal thing there is um but the one has to do that in order to fill out omniscience this is another theodicy point where all evils if they exist at all will have some kind of benefit and so for the one to uh collect all benefit the one itself has to descend and this this is in Proclus, uh, where the one uh, grounds all things all the way down to matter itself. So the one like it, the the highest has to proceed the farthest, and it will revert. So the one proceeds all the way down to matter itself, like the most primitive projection of prakriti, to use the tantric term, possible. The most erroneous, the most devious. 
in order to then revert back and ingather all of the the goods that came with that particular form of fall. Uh, and so what we are is caused by that will. So our distinct characteristics are like from eternity, from the one, a, a particular act of will, and all of them exist. Why are you the one that you are? Because you willed it. Because this is your this is that act of will. That is your mm -hmm. being. It's that particular act of ultimately the divine will, but it's right. a particular act of the divine will that is self-forgetful. That's ultimately like I could bring in reincarnation and like explanations through time as well, which are convergent with it. But that's the ultimate reason. Why am I what 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 I am? Because that's like God manifesting his will to experience all goods, um, including the ones that are like messed up, like our lives are. What would you think of real quick on this point? Because what would you think of like, so like Ramanuja, he was a critic of, um, of Adi Shankara and his Advaita Vedanta system. He created, you mm -hmm. know, Vishta Advaita Vedanta, you know, qualified non-dualism, qualified monism. Um, mm -hmm. one of his critiques, well, he actually kind of called, um, Shankara like a crypto Buddhist because, um, he basically, uh, he accused Shankara of basically making evil and good um, ultimately synonymous because they're both um, manifestations of the absolute in some sense. So like the path of delusion and the path of truth are ultimately two expressions of the same thing. Well, there's still the, the kind of procession out and the reversion back. The idea is that the one is the true reality. The one is all things. In, in the fullness of their being. And when you process out and fall into error and limitation and separation and matter, then it is it is a lesser form of reality. It's like a... Yeah, like the, the one reality is still what's grounding all of what is there. And so there's nothing other than the one reality. It's not like falsehood or evil has like its own substance. Mm -hmm. It's all predatory. But you're moving away from what is real um, when when you're descending into vice. So I'd say, yeah, I have noticed that with Advaita Vedanta, like people, they um, they definitely don't emphasize like the importance of doing good works. It's not that it's not there at all, but there is a kind of nihilism um, in the background, which is why like I, I've been more attracted to platonism um uh, interpreted as a maybe a form of qualified non-dualism but it's it's the kind of thing where i don't know exactly what to to make of it because i don't think a, a firm logical distinction at that highest level um really works um like i don't know if the the distinction it like say that non full-blown monism monism is the case and yet somehow we descend away from that into the illusion of of separation and, and plurality then like to to make sense of that to articulate that temporarily at least we have to like suppose some kind of qualified non-dualism something closer to platonism something where like intelligibility and reason and the, and the separation involved in a rational process is sort of similar to Verveke's argument for why like we need to suppose rationality in our ontology for science to work. Right. Well, 
yeah, we need to like suppose the the tools that we're using to philosophize are real. Yeah. Um, but then the again, like the full blown monist can say, well, yes, what is real in intelligibility is from the one. Like all real being is from the one, and so it's still like nothing is real but the one. And like I don't know, I'm kind of tired of this kind of philosophical game like maybe yeah. i don't fundamentally care whether full-blown non-dualism or qualified non-dualism is the case like i kind yeah. of rather just work from the bottom up and and acknowledge that i'm never gonna like discover the mysteries of whatever yeah. is beyond the ineffable you know right uh yeah i just asked that because it seems like you'd, you would you'd want to avoid like a kind of sabbatean frankist conclusion you oh, know yeah. so yeah, if evil is a manifestation of the absolute, um, and there's some crazy stuff in rabbinic tradition about God being reflected in the water, and you know, a lot of like um, Kabbalists are just happy to say, yeah, evil is from God, evil is a manifestation of God, you know, um, like I think that leads to some hair raising places. Um, you know, we don't have to get into politics, but you know, I think you know right. what I'm getting at. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I I know Maximus, and I I, I want I want to have you back sometimes. So we can discuss this, but Maximus is not uh, a greater goods theodicy guy. Like he's not, he doesn't think evil is justified because it uh, it it can lead to greater goods. He thinks it can. They do lead to greater goods, but fundamentally, he uh, he doesn't think evil is necessary to achieve those greater goods. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll have to have you back on sometime to get into that because lots of interesting stuff. I know. Um, by the way, thank you, Ethan, for that super chat. I know Wu had a second part to his question regarding uh, origin, like a kind of follow up. And since he's our mod, we gotta we gotta hook him up. So, do you think the do you take the Boethian approach vis-a-vis the intelligible and sensible planes, where their intrinsic autopoetic subsistence doesn't ontically conflict with God as prime cause? Yeah, it doesn't. Uh, it's not conflicting. So I, I don't know about the autopoiesis of the sensible plane. I would say that autopoiesis uh, terminates with souls. Um, like those are the only, the last necessary beings because uh, physical things and sensibles don't have their own hypostasis. They are unified by souls and it's the unity of physical things that gives it the reality that we're just restating what we said at the beginning about idealism you need that integrative uh, principle to even make physical systems coherent. So um, if I'm interpreting the question right, like does the the necessary being of the eternal natures, souls and forms conflict with uh, the one as the ground of all being and, and being itself? Um, well, yeah, once again, like if you're a, a monist, then fundamentally all things are the one and and so then saying that like the forms are necessary beings might seem to invoke a kind of pluralism that somehow diminishes the one. But uh, if like you interpret it like I did with the, the kind of ta- uh, Tantra necessary projection of all modes of Prakriti, then uh, the forms are just like the most elevated and like most real in the sense of like so to descend from a state of unity you're gonna have to pass through all the various grades that means on any one path down to matter you're gonna go through the each higher level form more often 
because it's like closer to the center like imagine a, a point and then the outer periphery like you're gonna hit the the points that are like closer to the center there so the higher forms you're gonna go through more often and so in that sense they have a greater degree of reality but the reality of them is the oneness in them and yet they're still in independently like that point next to the uh, the center of the circle always has to be there it's going to be there inevitably will be there um and as you move out further indefinitely far away from that center you reach points that like you're aiming at pure particularity where it's just a one-off experience that one trajectory going all the way out will hit and that's not like a necessary being i guess in a sense the the idea of necessary beings is on a spectrum and like some uh like the middle platonist numenius actually attributed immortality which essentially is what we're talking about with like necessary beings or self you know making beings um but yeah numenius attributed even physical habits uh immortality so you could say that like yeah, any like any mathematical structure, no matter how fra uh, marginal beneath the level of soul, like souls are integrated systems that are like mathematical in nature in some ways. But then like a particular equation, two plus two equals four. That's not a whole soul. It, th that's a partial mathematical existence. It's not it doesn't have like a full um self-subsistence in itself and yet even though it is suspended from something like us that is more mon monadic and integrative it's still like i i have no problem saying like two plus two equals four is a necessary being would always be known is like like as you were saying like known in the in god's logoi um but so yeah i don't know i mean <laughs> i i would say there is a real distinction between things that have complete essences and things which don't have complete essences. Essences are eternal structures, so they're you know combinations of intelligibles and like the procession isn't all in time. The procession from the one has to go through these first grades of like types of unity. Uh, it has to go through types of um, high level form the same the other being different proportions of these and then eventually you get to time and i think following that scale there, there's going to come a point where you leave the realm of the necessary beings and enter the realm of the contingent beings and that's basically at the, the last complete soul um so i it, it's like a, a real enough distinction to me um but yeah does it how how exactly was the question phrased does that conflict with the what of the the one where their intrinsic autopoetic subsistence doesn't ontically conflict with god as prime cause yeah as prime cause right so now that, that's a simpler question actually than what i was trying to address so god can still cause the forms and yet the forms are necessary beings just because that um, divine will, in a sense, freely exercised, is always going to pass through those things that are closer to the center. It has to move through all of the eternal essences to get to 
uh, time and particularity. Um, so it is generating, it is causing the lower things, and yet it's creating them in eternity and creating them with a kind of necessity. Um, so yeah, that's a complicated question. I, a Boethus, um, there's a Boethus and then a Boethius. 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 That's the constellation so. philosophy guy, right? I think so. Okay. That's the only thing I've read from him, so I don't distinctly remember it at this point. Uh, Trey, I kind of, we, we both had a question for Airball at the same time. No, I, I, what was I, your I completely question? Forgot, I completely forgot mine, honestly. I'm uh, sorry, no man. I'm sorry. No worries. But I'm noticing it's, I think it's 8 o'clock now for you, right, Eric? So you've got to get going, I think. Head to sleep. Um, and I, we don't have any more questions, so this, uh, this works perfectly. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so I think we'll just end the stream now. Um, yep. This was a great discussion. Thanks for coming back on, Eric. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, it was nice that you could meet Nate and Allhart. Um, yeah, maybe we'll have you on sometime again in the future for sure. Yeah, I want to get more into like maybe explicitly, at least just figuring out where we may disagree on certain things. Because yeah. in our first talk on, not on your channel, on my channel, um, we started started to get into that more. But uh, yeah, definitely a lot to definitely a lot to say on, on that. Yeah, we'll stay in touch. Great, great questions. Great conversation. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank God you. bless.